New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In the words of poet and farmer Wendell Berry, the care of the earth is our most ancient and most worthy and, after all, our most pleasing responsibility to cherish what remains of it and to foster its renewal is our only legitimate hope. Our guest today tells us that caring for the soil recreates conditions for life and is an action that each of us can take to commit to a piece of dirt and bring it to life, even on a small microbial level, is ultimately a passionate act of love. Urban farmers are picking up the shovel and the hoe and are reclaiming heirloom agrarian practices as strategies for artful living. We'll be exploring this grassroots cultural explosion with our guest today, Rachel Kaplan. Rachel Kaplan has been gardening in and around urban environments for more than 20 years and belongs to a bi-coastal family of farmers and gardeners. She is a psychotherapist and educator and offers consultation with a permaculture focus for businesses, nonprofits, schools, and community groups. She holds a master's degree in counseling psychology from Sonoma State University and a second degree in interdisciplinary arts from San Francisco State. She has written and edited numerous books, including The Probable Site of the Garden of Eden and along with Kay Ruby Bloom, Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. Rachel lives in Petaluma, California with her partner and their daughter on a little homestead they call Tiny Town Farm. Join us for the next hour as we explore dirt farming in the city with our guest, Rachel Kaplan. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Rachel, welcome. Thank you. It's good to have you here. I, the book is beautiful. I just I, I wish that people could see it. We're on the radio, but the book is physically beautiful and it is chock full. Those of us who are very very beginners or haven't even thought about it, you have done a good job to get us thinking about that possibility. Thank you. Tell me, um, what do you mean by urban homesteading? Urban homesteading is a do-it-yourself people's movement that's happening all around the country where people with no previous experience of farming or even owning their own homes are starting to grow their own food, take care of what we think of as farm animals, chickens, goats, bees, quail, learning to preserve and keep their bounty in ways that were once 
traditional and commonplace, but have sort of lost their appeal in our convenient culture. So it's a food movement, but it's also a movement of people who are concerned about conservation of energy and water and waste and learning to live with less impact on the earth and with a greater sense of what it means to be part of the place where we live and to be thinking ecologically. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the difference between that kind of farming, let's say, and, and the agribusiness? Uh, well, let's let's talk about what the difference might be. Well, the kind of farming that we do is organic in nature, low to no pesticides at all. And pesticides are, after all, just things that we use to put on pests to make them go away. You can have an organic pesticide, for example. But this is organic gardening in small spaces in in land that we don't think of necessarily as agricultural, like containers on the back of a somebody's deck or an abandoned lot that used to have a building in it and is now just fallow. So it, it's it's almost the polar opposite of agribusiness, which is high-intensity pesticide use, high um, fossil fuel use, long distances for the food to reach your table. The food that we grow comes from the backyard or from around the corner or from the community garden. So. Mm-hmm. It's very different. So why would someone, a lot of us go to farmer's markets, and these are locally grown produce, and some of the stores even buy, you know, co-ops and different stores are buying locally, and they advertise Mm -hmm. that. So what would be the advantage of, of doing your own garden as opposed to going to a farmer's market? That's a good question. I think going to farmer's markets and sourcing food locally is a great way to go. Um, Some people don't really have an affinity for gardening and don't want to garden. And so for those people who don't want to do that, that's a wonderful way to get healthier, more nutritious food for you and your family. If you love to garden and you love to be around green and growing things, there's really nothing better than growing your own dinner. And so it provides a lot of satisfaction and it provides wonderful and nutritious food. And it also can provide a sense of security. We talk a lot about security in these years. There's a, there's a feeling that you get when you know how to grow your own food that is different from buying food from somebody. There was something that I picked up in your book and uh, in, in the writing and there was, it was um, like an antidote I'm interpreting it now, an antidote to fear. And and we are in a fear-based culture. I've heard people say when they enter the United States, there's a different feeling here, and it's one of of fear, of of contraction, of anxiety, that they that the whole culture mm-hmm. is holding that. And you being also a psychotherapist in body-based uh, psychotherapy, Talk a little bit about what does it mean to get your hands in the dirt and how can that help to alleviate some of this anxiety that we hold in our bodies? Mm-hmm. Well, there there is research that's been done about what happens when you actually put your hands in the dirt. And it's been shown, and I can't cite exactly chapter and verse right here, but it's been shown that putting your hands in the dirt and being in touch with the microorganisms of the soil actually alleviates depression. So it's, it is actually good for you when you're anxious and depressed to grow something. I myself have found that when I feel concerned about the world and what's happening and my 
genuine lack of power power to affect things the way I want, that being among things that are growing, going from the, the beginning process of planting a seed and watching it grow and harvesting it is very calming. And um, it's a reminder of sort of the true energy that we live around, that things live and they die and they compost back into the soil and then they grow up again. That's the true energy of the world that we can connect to when we're gardening. So, And sort of the extra is we get really great food out of it and we get to teach our children that this is the cycle of life that we all live in. In that's really very I, that's very heartening. I, li- I like what you're saying there. And one of the suggestions you have in your book is, okay, you don't have to do this on jump in at huge scale, at least to begin with. Start out small. You even say, do a little little pots of herbs mm-hmm. on top of your, you know, the sill next to your sink. Mm-hmm. I mean, that like, oh, even I could do you that. You could do that, right. You know, and, uh, so, so talk about that. It doesn't have to be a huge project. It, it can grow into that, but mm-hmm. it can, you can start really small. Yeah, we think starting small is really important. You're not going to go from wherever you are to living on an urban farm in one season. And it's really important to start with something you love, something you're drawn to, and to set it up in a way that you can succeed at it. You we, we tend to um, do something again when we've had success. And so you start with something you love and you start small. You grow some lettuce or you grow some beans. Beans are brilliant. You put them and you really get where Jack and the Beanstalk came from. You can see them. If you sit and watch a bean, you can see it unfurl over the course of a day. So... Yeah, we start small and we start with what we care about. Some people really care about water. So saving water becomes their first thing. And the simple way to do that is you take a shower and you plug up the plug so the water doesn't go down the drain. And then you use a bucket to flush the toilet with that water. Simple, affordable, accessible solution to a water problem. Beautiful. I mean, water's a big, big issue, especially now. Uh, And... You have a whole section devoted to water. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about water a bit. So what can you tell us about water and what we could do? Well, as you say, water is a huge issue, especially in the West where we're subject to droughts and not sufficient water. And in many parts of the country, the municipal water systems are getting older and less functional. And um all the waters of the world are connected, of course. It's one water. So even if we live in a, in a place where there seems to be an abundance, water itself, fresh water, is um, endangered and shortage. There's a shortage of it. So there are simple things to do. As I say, you can save water when you wash the dishes. You can set up a situation where you, you wash the dishes in one sink and rinse them in the second sink and take that second sink water and dump it on your garden so you reuse the water. So you just put a, like, it's just as simple as putting a little... Plastic, um, plastic, plastic, yeah, bin plastic in, pan, pan mm-hmm. in there, and lifting it lifting out, and it out, and using taking it, it to water the herbs that you're growing uh-huh, on your windowsill. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and you can um, take the water from the laundry or the bathtub. This is called gray water. It's it's basically lightly used water that has soap in it. And if you use some good organic biodegradable soap. Mm-hmm. And there are more and more companies make things that actually on the label say gray water safe. Mm-hmm. And in California, for example, we just passed a law that makes a laundry to landscape um, system legal, perfectly legal. So you can pipe it so that the water goes directly into your garden. You don't have to carry buckets around. You don't have to do a lot of work. You just know that as you're using your shower, the water's going into 
mm-hmm. the ground. You did say something in your book that I noticed that it's good to look at the label and, and to make sure that it doesn't have salt in it. Yes, yeah, salts can build up in the soil and um, are not good for growing plants. So you do need to read the labels on the soap and the... So what are you looking for? What 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 compound are you looking for that... It, it... says biodegradable and septic or gray water safe. Okay, and yeah. you can trust that one. Yeah, I yeah. believe you can. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oasis, Oasis makes a brand and I think BioClean makes a brand, mm-hmm. but you could search through your grocery store or mm-hmm. online for things that qualify yeah. for that. And there yeah. are more and more yeah. products like that. I mean, I, I, I know that there are a lot of issues in certain towns. I've heard that like you do not own the water that falls on your roof, so you may not be able to collect water. Yeah, my understanding in California, it's legal. In some states, it is actually illegal to gather the water off your roof, which strikes me as being somewhat problematic. Um, It is not that difficult to gather rainwater off your roof. And what you find, there's a formula for um, figuring out with the square footage of your house how much water you get per year, depending on Mm -hmm. what the rainfall is. Mm -hmm. It's a huge quantity. It starts with a thousand square foot house. It starts being in most places, even where we live, 25 inches of rain on average a year, it's over to 20,000 gallons of wow. water. So wow. you have, what we have really is a storage problem, not a shortage problem. We'll, we'll talk about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Rachel Kaplan, and she, along with Kay Ruby Bloom, are the authors of Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, Urban hyphen homesteading.org or for uh, Ruby Bloom you go to iuhoakland.com and that stands for Institute for Urban Homesteading iuhoakland.com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website newdimensions.org My name is Justine Willis-Toms you're listening to New Dimensions Rachel Kaplan. She, along with Kay Ruby Bloom, are the authors of Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. And we were talking about water, and you were saying that the the it's not catching it so much, but it's the storage of it. So you wanted to say something about storing the water? Yeah, we have more of a storage problem when it comes to water in some places than a shortage problem. Our shortage is from the fact that we're not storing the water properly. So people um, setting up rainwater catchment systems in their own 
homes catching the water off the roof can mitigate the impact on the municipal water systems, not using water that's going through all of this processing, but just using the water that comes right from the sky. And it's, um, it's easy to do. It's easy to divert your gutters into a storage basin and then use that water to water the garden. And now, doesn't the water get stale, though, after a while? Let's say, like in California, it doesn't rain. during. We have a dry season. And, and so if it's stored, it, it, does it go bad? It doesn't go bad. There are ways to store it so that it's um, potable, that you can actually drink it. And there are definitely simple ways to store it so that you can use it as water just for the landscape. So it really depends on your needs. And you would set up a system differently if you wanted to drink it than if you wanted right. to just give it to your plants. So, Rachel, let's just talk about dirt. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about uh, the soil. So let's suppose that we are in the city, and let's suppose that we have a backyard uh, and it's pretty hard packed mm-hmm. and it has maybe rubble in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a typical city backyard might be pretty pretty ugly and grungy. So mm-hmm. what what do you do with that? Well, there are a couple of things you can do. You can definitely garden in raised beds or containers where you would bring in dirt, new good dirt, and then you can grow in that. And then you wouldn't have to worry so much about um, remediating the soil in your yard. But if you wanted to commit to that piece of land more, you can do a process called sheet mulching, which is to lay down compost and cardboard and mulch and water and let the earthworms come up through the soil, even in um, poor soil, that will happen. And over time, you keep adding compost. You compost your kitchen scraps and other organic matter that you have around, and you keep adding and adding. And over time, that soil will become more fertile and a place where you can grow things. I was very heartened by that particular segment, and especially about the worms. And I know when when I'm in circle or we're doing something, and there we're we're doing maybe a little ritual, I'm the one who calls in the earthworms because mm-hmm. I know how important they mm-hmm. are to the whole ecosystem. So talk about earthworms. If you yeah, like they're it. like the, they're like magicians, aren't they? They turn what we don't need into soil that we do need. So there are ways to um, increase their, you know, to create an environment that invites them in. And you can do something as simple as um, starting a worm bin, which is also a way that you can just on your back porch or in a very small place, start cutting up your kitchen scraps and adding newspaper or sh- wood shavings. And you, you inoculate it with a small amount of red r- wriggler worms, which you can get easily. And they'll just proliferate and grow and grow. And the dirt that they put out is the highest quality dirt you can get. So back to that the part we were talking about, about starting small, even taking on, you can become a champion of the earthworm, you know? <laughs> know. You could maybe become that's a, my assignment. Yeah, maybe that's what you want to do. It's a small, simple, discreet action that you could take. Some people want to take care of the bees, you know? Oh, there's let's all, talk about the let's bees. Let's talk about the bees. Bees, you know, there's a, they've been in the news because uh-huh. there's, there's something going on with bees. And they are... Are, are very important to the ecosystem. They are. So tell us about bees. Well, as you probably know, there's something called colony collapse disorder, that bees are suffering from the pesticide load in their hives and from the fact that many bees are being used in industrial agriculture to pollinate 
a, a huge majority of our crops. So they're being carried from place to place on the back of trucks for almond season or apple season or pear season and being used in that way to pollinate. And they're suffering from fatigue, I believe. So there's pesticides, there's too much travel, and there's the the breakdown of the habitat that supports bees. So one way urban people can really participate is either by becoming beekeepers or making their space available for a hive for a beekeeper who loves, who's already invested in the beekeeping practice and wants to put bees in as many places as possible, or by planting flowers that and plants that bees love and creating habitat for bees. And even though sometimes we think of cities as places that aren't green or things aren't growing, in many places there's a lot of there's a lot of um, greenery in a city. And so you can get very intentional about what you plant to give food to the bees. Mm-hmm. Now that that takes me to the question and to the idea of all of this can also serve to create community. And let's say like. If I were living in the city and I decide to do bees and my neighbor starts to see these white boxes Mm -hmm. that that they recognize, "Uh uh-oh, she's doing bees, and that might scare people. Mm -hmm. And it does start a dialogue, doesn't it? Absolutely. So tell us about creating community. I'm glad you asked that because that's one of our most important ideas, we think, in the book is that, as you said, not everyone's going to do all of this, and everybody doesn't have to. But when we start taking on a piece of the sustainability puzzle and our neighbor takes on another piece and we start relating to one another about it, we, we do start having different dialogues, different exchanges. And what starts growing is what we think of as community resilience, which is a way that we in our little places on our blocks or our neighborhoods can start providing more for our immediate needs. So say you're a great tomato grower, but my yard, I can't grow tomatoes, but I'm really got a lot of extra honey. We start trading. We start giving to each other. We start talking about what it means to take care of bees or tomatoes. And we're building a little piece of new relationship. And this can happen in lots of different ways. And we th- we think of these, uh, we call this uh, the homegrown guild. Like guilds are associations of like-minded artisans. This is an old form of the union. This is a way of um, creating quality work and work products. And we think of it in terms of different people with different skills coming into relationship with one another and trading or bartering or generating a new economy that's local and is specific to what we actually need as opposed to the economy that we currently live in, which tends to be a lot of stuff we don't really need that comes to us from really far away. Mm-hmm. I can kind of see this is a way of us for us to call our neighbors in, say, well, I'm doing this little garden project, or I'd like to, and I'd love to have a meeting. It, you mm-hmm. know, it's something to come around because Absolutely. we live in such isolated ways. We do. And uh, so it could be the beginning of that that guild, so to speak. And we, we do live isolated, and yet we all need some very similar things. We all need and want good housing and good food and clean air and clean water and a safe place for our children to grow up. So we are very different, and we often come in this country from a very polarized political or spiritual perspectives. But when we get right down to the the essentials, we need similar things, and so we... We're served by learning to communicate across those divides and sharing some of the things that we that we each need with one another. And it's not always easy because mm-hmm. there's a diversity of views. People get opinionated. In fact, you you even make the comment in the book that 
the gardening part is is more simple than that interrelational yeah. part, and that's that that's years in the making. Yep. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's been coming up a lot in the just in a lot of different conversations with people that we have the technology we need to change the world to make it healthier and more sustainable, to use that word. But what we don't seem to have is the will or the capacity to get along with one another. And you can see that at the highest levels of government where there's huge resource and access to technology, but the political will and the ability to negotiate and forge a real human um, solution is not there. But that trickles down to each one of us, Mm -hmm. to the ways we get along with our partners and our children and our neighbors and the people we work with and people are, it's hard for us. That's the sticking point. In fact, you you have a story in your book where you really, (laughs) she's cringing a little bit, uh, uh, to you tell a story on yourself, the the chicken story, where where you maybe didn't do it as well as you could have. So please share that because, you know, we're we're all human and we all are doing this. Okay, you caught me. So the chicken story is that I have a neighbor who has a lot of chickens. They have a very big yard. They have a couple of acres. I have a very small 5,000 square foot homestead. So every little plant matters. And um, one day I came home to see that something had been digging in the yard. I didn't know what it was. The next day I came home, my partner said, the chickens from next door are in the driveway. So I caught the chicken and brought it over to the neighbor. And I said, hey, please pen your chickens in because... Every plant over here is sacred. And they said, oh, we will, we will, we will. And then two days later, the chicken was in the yard again. And without thinking, I I cornered the chicken in the alley by the side of the house. I caught it screaming and cursing all the while, so loud that they could hear me next door. I flung the chicken into an empty hutch, and then I took it and put it in my chicken coop with my flock around the corner. And then basically forgot about it. I felt completely righteous and justified in my absurd action. I knew I had done the wrong thing because I didn't tell my daughter. I hid (laughs) the whole thing. And then three days later, my friend whose house I keep my chickens at, she called and she said, your neighbor came to get her chicken. And I thought, oh, my God, now I'm busted. Now I have to go and apologize. So I tromped next door and it was pouring rain. And I went to apologize to her. And she gave me what for. She just was angry, as well she should be. And I apologized, and I explained myself, and we went through it, but it it definitely damaged our relationships. And, um, you know, it's still awkward between us. Like, it's, it's going to be years, really, before that injury of that small, stupid thing I did is diminished. Right. And, and it's like, all the way down to that level when we say, oh, we shouldn't be in wars, we shouldn't be doing this and this and that, and that takes it kind of out of out of it. But it's our everyday acts. And and also it's it's her decision too to to not forgive. Mm-hmm. So that's like her side. you know, her side of it. And your side of it is that yeah, you you in an impulse you did that. So um but while we're talking about chickens, um, a lot of people, like that's a big movement right now mm-hmm. is people having chickens. My curiosity uh, is how do you keep keep it just hens and not roosters? Because roosters can be very upsetting to neighbors. Well, you can't keep it just hens and not roosters. Sometimes you'll get a rooster. So you can decide to um, give that rooster to somebody who wants it. You can sometimes give it back to the feed store, the farm shop that you got it from, or you can 
eat it. (laughs) So that's what we can do with roosters. But, you know, the place where I buy my chickens, they say nine out of 10 will be hens. And that's been our experience. Uh Can I just, may I go back to that chicken story? Because I feel like the, the thing for me about that story that's most important to reinforce is that what we do inside is um, reflective of how we are outside. And so if we're um, doing all this good work with the material plane, but we're spewing hate at our neighbors or the stuff between our ears is still in the negative, in the fear, in the scarcity, that we're not composting our own inner garden properly. And so I see more and more that this inside dance and this outside dance are totally connected. They are totally. We need to work and so then that's another answer to the question of like, well, what can I do to help is to cultivate our inner garden as inner well. Inner garden. I'm here with Rachel Kaplan. Uh, she is the author, along with Kay Ruby Bloom, of Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. My name is Justine Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Rachel Kaplan, and she, along with Kay Ruby Bloom, are the authors of Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, which is urban-homesteading.org, and there are blogs and events on on that website. And um, Kay Ruby Bloom um, does something called the Institute for Urban Homesteading. And if you're living in Northern California, this is something really good to tap into because she does classes. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, iuhoakland.com. That's iuhoakland.com. Or you can get to both of them through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Rachel, that you talked about another part of the book was these buildings, building in certain ways, like maybe building a chicken coop or or building um, whatever it is, a bench out by your house, or even building an an addition to your house. And you make a distinction of natural building and green building. So talk about the difference between those two. Natural building tends to be some of the, what we would think of as heirloom or vernacular building practices that come from around the world that are very, very old, that have to do with using mud and straw and rock and um, adobe. So really um, resources directly from the earth. Also natural building will use repurposed or recycled lumber. And green building tends to be a series of standards that incorporate some principles of sustainability like passive solar heating or potentially maybe using some water saving in the landscape, but uses new materials pretty much all the time and still high resource impact in building practices, uses um, you know new lumber, cement, or concrete for foundations. So things that are not renewable, recyclable, 
or really from the earth in the same way. So that's some of the differences. What, what are some of the building restrictions, like building codes? Can you, I mean, I know straw bale is is one, and then you t- talk about something, what is it called? Um, cob? Cob. Cob, C-O-B, cob. as in boy. Uh, so what is what is cob? I, cob is basically um, dirt and water and straw, which is mixed together with hands and feet and then used... Um, you can use it with your hands to make a structure. It is literally a mud hut. It is, it's an ancient practice, even though one thinks it would go away in the first rainstorm. There's cob structures around the world that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. So, um, And what does the city think about that? One would have a hard time building a very large cob structure to code, but there are lots of smaller structures that you can make with these natural building materials that you can get permits for. Some of the people we interviewed in the book are doing a a natural building retrofit in um, Contra Costa County where they're using some, they're definitely structural issues tend to be where the permitting process is really the most important. So if you're meeting the structural guidelines but using natural materials, you can actually do a natural building retrofit or a natural building. I was was interested in... Uh, bamboo. You were talking mm-hmm. about bamboo as actually in re- putting what? What do you you? What do you use? Rebar, rebar, some rebar in within a constructed wall. Mm-hmm. This would take the place of mm-hmm. that. Bamboo is extremely strong, extremely pliable. It bends in a wind. It, you can grow it in your backyard. It's fast growing. It's a renewable resource. It's there's good reasons that bamboo is becoming more and more popular as a building material. I'm really excited yeah. about bamboo. And I was excited about reading in your book that there are two kinds. That There's the bunching bamboo and the runner bamboo mm-hmm. in there. So you want to make sure that you get the bunching. Bunching, clumping so, bamboo, for clumping. sure. So talk about that. Well, runner bamboo will take over anything. It will dig up the asphalt. It will it will go forever. And it is, unless you have a very large piece of land where you actually want a huge clump of bamboo, I would recommend clumping bamboo, which is much more easily managed. Sometimes people plant bamboo in large metal troughs, actually. They dig them down to keep them from running. But I have heard even of the bamboo piercing the <laughs> troughs. So They're tenacious. They are. It's a serious... Kind of like kudzu in the South. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they it grows very fast. It's very sturdy. If you've ever been around a, a grove of um, bamboo that's um, older, they, they get very big, very thick, mm-hmm. very sturdy, mm-hmm. very beautiful mm-hmm. material. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that I want to talk about that I know everybody's interested in, I'm sure, well, maybe they're not, but I'm going, I am, uh, is composting toilets. Uh, this is a big issue, and we are so uptight in this culture yes. about toilets and about our poo. waste. Poo, yeah. <laughs> I think that there's a wonderful children's book about poo. Yes, everybody that. poops. Everybody poops. So uh, let's talk about composting toilets. Okay. Well, this, I would say, is one of the places where we get told that we're very hardcore when we talk about composting our own wastes. I agree with you. We're, we're very um, fecal phobic in this culture. There's a lot of anxiety and kind of denial about it. So what we do is we poop and we flush it away so we don't have to think about it. Now, there is no away, right? Where are we flushing things? We're flushing things into the water system where we have to spend a lot of money and chemicals and energy to decontaminate the water. So that's not a good solution. 
um, human waste, just like animal waste and just like our kitchen scraps, is actually compostable and can turn into fertility for our soils. So because we are actually living in a time when we're losing topsoil, we're losing fertility all around. And there's never, there's no civilization that has survived the loss of its soil fertility. Oh, now say that again, because it's an important point. There's no civilization that has survived the loss of its soil fertility. So instead of flushing our wastes away, if we could catch them and compost them safely, which we can, and reuse them and put them back into the earth, we're doing we're doing double duty on <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> on the sustainability front. We're not we're not fouling the waters and we're enhancing the soil. Mm-hmm. So there are some simple ways to do it, and then there are some more elaborate systems. Um, so a man named, I can't remember, Joseph Jenkins, who wrote a book called The Humanure Handbook. He's the king of poo. That's the greatest book to read about how to safely um, compost human waste. Say, say the name of the book again. The Humanure Handbook. So human, hue, manure. Manure. Yeah. Manure. Okay, great. So, But there are simple, his systems tend to need a little bit more space. So for the urban pooper, we can be as simple as... Um, buying a medical toilet seat, the kind you just can sit down on it and putting a bucket underneath it. And you can have one bucket for pee and one for poo. And you can... Because it's important to separate the two. It's important to separate them for the smell Mm -hmm. in a small space. Mm -hmm. You can't actually compost them together. What we do with the urine is we dilute it and put it in the compost bin. Urine is sterile and high in nitrogen. So it actually is excellent fertilizer for the garden and helps the compost bin get hot and do its groovy thing. And then with the um, the poo, you put some uh, dirt with worms in it and you make your deposits and you cover them with um, carbon matter like straw or shavings, wood shavings, and you fill up the bucket and then you... Um, Cover that at the, when it's done with more dirt with worms in it, and you let it sit out for three or four months, and it will compost. Oh, and you can plant a tree magical. in it and give it to a friend. You can, oh, I loved it. You said, but, you know, put a tree on it then, and then you can, you know, start start growing a tree, and you, you can. can give that away as a gift you or, can. or keep it and you start can. your own little forest. <laughs> you can. So yeah. that would be a huge, huge thing for people but we have to turn around and face our cultural bias against the darkness or mm-hmm. the shadow because mm-hmm. i think in some ways that's what it it represents it's mm-hmm. this this waste product that comes from well us. i rem- we uh i i spent some time down in baja on on the near uh, san ignacio lagoon to see the gray whale mm-hmm. and i've been down there several time and times and it's everything is sustainable there there's no electricity out there so we had those toilets where we had some sawdust and it was just fine there mm-hmm. was no odor it mm-hmm. was just fine and they just it, it, it was very clean and mm-hmm. not offensive mm-hmm. in the least yeah. so i can attest to that to yeah. our I, listeners that hey it works it's doable yeah we've built up a lot of um, negative thinking about this part of our bodies and our relationship to the, the cycles again it's a natural cycle for things to come in and then go out mm-hmm. and we 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 throw away the the byproduct and call it waste and it's actually it's not waste no the earth really wants it uh, I, I remember when we first interviewed uh, Bill McDonough. We, he he was born, I believe, in Hong Kong, or he is a 
young man, young child. And he talked about how they, there, people would come and mm-hmm. pick up the waste mm-hmm. uh, in the mornings or in the evenings, one or the other, and in the evenings. And then in the morning, they would give you, you know, they would bring vegetables and mm-hmm. things around. And mm-hmm. he could see that whole cycle. They just recycled all of that. And it's it's so important because, as you say, topsoil, we, we've learned that from, what was it, in the 30s and the dust bowls. And, and now it's happening again yeah. that where the wind is picking up and just blowing off all this this topsoil that Absolutely. the earth has taken years and years and years to yeah. accumulate. And so whatever we can do to help, mm-hmm. I know I'm starting to preach here, but I, <laughs> I get a, a, rather excited about yeah. it because there is something we can do. There is. And Bill McDonough is the person who coined the phrase, uh, waste equals food. So what's waste to someone is food for someone else. So that brings us back to the magic earthworm. Because that's, <laughs> which yeah. makes you smile. Yeah. And um, also back to that question of how this kind of farming or food growing is different from industrial agriculture. Industrial agriculture really uses a lot of byproducts and then throws them away. But this is a closed system where we try to recycle back everything we have on our homesteads back into the earth so that it can keep yielding, closing closing the loops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know when you, you talk about like, what we're trying to go for is to move away from being a dominator culture into a collaborator culture or or moving from from just destroying and tearing down to something that is sustainable. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? Sure. I think that many of the certainly the dominant ethos has been about subjugation of peoples and places. That's certainly the history of our country. And of, you know, a much, much of the patriarchal West, for lack of a better way to talk about it. And we're really seeing a paradigm shift towards more of a stewardship model, as you're saying, or a cooperative, true democracy model where every voice is, is heard at the table, which includes the voice of the earthworm and the voice of the coyote and the voice of people who have been marginalized. And that we have to... Um, we see that the earth is finite and we see that we have we have a certain amount of resources that we need to learn to share and that the model of just um, the earth is here for us to devour is it's over. We can't continue to live that way and survive. Exactly. I'm here with Rachel Kaplan and she, along with Kay Ruby Bloom, are the authors of Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, urban-homesteading.org. And if you'd like to be in touch with uh, Ruby Bloom, uh, she does the Institute for Urban Homesteading, and that's in Northern California. You can go to her website, iuhoakland.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Rachel Kaplan, and we're talking about urban homesteading. You can actually grow things and and pay attention to the earth right in your own home, in downtown, wherever it is. Let's talk about the spiritual aspect of this. Is there a spiritual component to working with the land and working with the dirt and growing things? For me, the whole lifestyle has a spiritual component that fits into lots of different um, lineages. As a Jewish person, I see it in the the idea of tukun alam, which is the healing of the broken places of the world. And that's an idea in Judaism that really encourages us to be active citizens and to tend to the world around us, to not retreat into our spiritual solace, but to engage culturally. And as a Buddhist, it, it is in the socially engaged Buddhist lineage of someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, also where we take the inner peace and we move it out into the world in a peaceful fashion. So again, the inside and the outside are connected. In terms of paganism, it's it's like paganism in practice. It's a way of relating to the elements, to the, the earth mother, to the wind, the water, the fire, the air. So it, it feels very rooted in those practices. It also, in my mind, connects to the Christian ideal of the idea that the kingdom of God is among us now and that our task is to be stewards and caretakers of the world. So that's, to me, the true Christian ideal that isn't always enacted, but that is at the root of that great world religion. So, And the indigenous um, religions that we are so connected to in the practice of permaculture, which is one of the foundational um, systems that for me underlies the practice is really about how we are in relationship to all the creatures around us, that they are our relations, the the birds, the the coyote, the worm, the trees, the plants with all of their names, that we come into relationship with them and with these beings that we share our place with. So to me, it's a deeply spiritual practice, and it can be, we can live that even amidst the noise and the hustle and bustle of a city, because Cities have their own nature and their own creatures and need tending. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is something that we do in our culture, and that's that we feel ourselves separate from from the earth, uh, from from the body of the earth, and and it's in some ways it's not really working very well when when we think that we are not of the earth. So Mm -hmm. can you say something about that? Well, I personally have experienced a call from the earth to to take care, you know, that I I feel it in in my body, in my heart, that things are not well for the earth. The cutting down of the trees hurts me personally. I feel that. And so for me, I've been called to this life because... I want to be part of the healing. But I, I see that many people don't feel, they don't hear the call of the trees. They don't feel um, the topsoil drifting away. And it, it does seem to come from this disconnection from our place. And so I think some of the simpler practices in homesteading really just help us learn to feel that in an embodied way. As soon as you start tracking the cycle of the sun and the moon or the seasons, you're living more in your place than if you're just, you know, on, um, you know, it's seven o'clock, it's nine o'clock kind of time. Like if you really start getting into the rhythms and the cycles of the world, I think you start feeling and hearing that more. I think I think that's one of our pivotal breakdowns is not feeling part of nature, but we are nature. 
And so to reconnect to that in whatever way we can is, um, is very important. And one of the things we talk about in this book that um, doesn't get talked about a lot in the sustainability world is about taking care of ourselves and um, self-care as being really intrinsic to um, planet care. And sometimes it's looked on as an indulgence or um, it's too, things are too urgent or we're too busy or I don't have time for that. But we think it's really wise to take care of ourselves, to learn to slow down enough, to listen to our inner voice, to nourish ourselves. Cities are demanding, difficult places sometimes you can get lost. And when we're not centered and when we don't hear our own voice, it's um, it's easy to to take bad actions or to steal your neighbor's chicken or to make <laughs> mistakes. And um, we need to refill the well. And for those of us who who hear the call of the earth and who are carrying this burden of earth care um, in a culture that seems to be swimming, you know, or going right over the cliff, um, we, need to, we need to care for ourselves too. And I think that that's part of that conversation about being part of the world. And I know that you mentioned something in your book about doing something where it's unmediated mm-hmm. living, where, where we're not going through some sort of mm-hmm. news information mm-hmm. or technology or whatever, but just that direct contact with mm-hmm. that which actually nourishes us, um, which is the earth itself that mm-hmm. holds us up. And we are not separate from. Right. And um, why does art matter? Art matters because art gives us an experience of expression and human connection and a chance to make images and metaphor and meaning out of the mystery that surrounds us. And Ruby and I come from a a community art background. Ruby founded a beautiful organization called Wise Fool Puppet Intervention, which made beautiful puppets and great street art. And I worked for a long time in large groups of people and small groups of people making performance pieces that were also about the earth and our bodies and our connections to one another across lots of different social boundaries. And it's a way to make contact and community. And and even if you're not a professional artist, if you engage in an amateur way in just letting your, your soul express itself, it is a healing, nourishing, altering experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we put in that self care section. We feel like it's it's extremely vital. Right. There's a whole section also about um, co-housing mm-hmm. and people starting to develop tribal sort of ways of living back to where they're really cooperating mm-hmm. very closely with one another. And I know in, in Sonoma County, uh, there's a lot going on. And even in the San Francisco, across the bay in Oakland and in Berkeley, a lot going on mm-hmm. there. So, and, and all over the U.S. So mm-hmm. say something about the co-housing. Well, co-housing is a beautiful way that people can live closer together, make some choices about how to use both their houses and the land surrounding their houses in common with one another, share resources. You can, you know, 10 people can share a washing machine. Everybody doesn't have to have one. People can share cars. People can buy food in bulk. People can share childcare, can make dinners for one another, garden together. The list goes on and on. The co-housing community we spoke about in the book is called Mariposa Grove in Oakland was three former crack houses that were refurbished and fixed up. So they now house, I think there's like eight or nine units 
16 kids. It's it's abundant. They turned an asphalt parking lot into a permaculture food forest. They have a, a little theater stage that's where they do passion plays. They have chickens running around. They bought a house behind. It just keeps growing. And they're evolving different social structures for learning to share and cooperate, which, as we talked about before, is kind of the human edge. So I think co-housing is often, it's less about growing your own food and then it is about um, deconstructing some of these ideas about private property and ownership and even what is a family. And I think it's really good. Now, there there are a lot of established ones that have kind of paved the way. Mm-hmm. And they paved the way through a lot of hardship and a lot of haggling and a lot of, you know, reducing their egoic structures towards mm-hmm. being, uh, you know, wanting this is the way I want it and you know that that whole way that we are, have been mm-hmm. in this forging our independence mm-hmm. and we're having to relearn in this country mm-hmm. how to be codependent and interdependent interdependent yeah. Yeah. Uh, and not codependent that's not such a great word but interdependent and um so in in this way, there's a lot of literature, a lot of things out there that have helped to pave the way that would be helpful for Absolutely. people. Absolutely, There's a whole communities movement. There's a magazine called Communities where you can learn a lot about um, experiments from the past and the present. And right. it is one of the edges for us about um, giving up our independence and even this idea of self-sufficiency, which sometimes gets coupled with homesteading. It's about mm-hmm. self-sufficiency. We don't believe in self-sufficiency. We believe in resilience and interdependence, and those are different things. That's a really important part point because there there is that whole movement to to separate oneself out of society, and I'm going to get mine, and I'm going to be self sufficient. But this whole movement that you're talking about is that co co creative one that we understand that we're interdependent. You can't be self sufficient in a city, and you really can't even do it in a rural way. You always need someone to fix your tractor or to bring you something. There, we're not self sufficient. It's part of the mythos that we're trying to get out from under, and we we need to back to the homegrown guild. We need to each get really good at what we love and offer it up to other people who are good at what they love, and really start learning how to share the resources. Well, you know, I just want to thank you so much for being on New Dimensions and for putting this beautiful book together. As I say, it's a, it's physically gorgeous with beautiful photographs, many, many stories in it that people can can go to. It has also a lot of um, ideas of how to start small, get bigger, however you want to do it. So I I really thank you for putting this all together. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Rachel Kaplan, and she is the author, along with Kay Ruby Bloom, of Urban Homesteading, Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. And if you'd like to be in touch with Rachel, you can go to her website. There are blogs there and there's events there, and it's called urban-homesteading.org. Or if you'd like to be in touch with uh, Kay Ruby Bloom, she does something called the Institute for Urban Homesteading, and this has classes. If you're living in Northern California, you can really work with that. Then you can go to her website. It's iuhoakland.com. 
And you can get there also through the New Dimensions website to either one of those websites, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3408. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.